Matthew 11, and we'll specifically look at verses 25 to 30. These words represent a great way for us to start our year. I'll begin the reading at verse 25 and go to verse 30, but the focus of our study this morning will actually be verses 28 to 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. One of the elders asked me this morning how we ended up in the book of Matthew when we had been studying for the last several months the Minor Prophets. We will indeed return to the Minor Prophets, but there were a couple things going on this week that pushed me this direction. Uh, One was I was with my family over Christmas and hadn't seen them for close to a year and wanted to spend time focusing on them and ministering to them, and so I knew that the book of Haggai would represent a significant investment in study and new territory. And there was no way that I could do that well and still minister to my family. So I punted on Haggai. That's reason one. Reason number two, I wanted to do something at the beginning of the year that was close to my own heart pastorally. Of course, it is my desire to work us through expositions of Scripture sequentially. And yet at the same time, I'm still a pastor who recognizes unique needs and opportunities within the congregation. And one that I think is especially helpful and relevant at this time of year is a clarion call to resist the subtle influences of legalism. Every year, we start off with resolutions to make ourselves better people, uh, to fix all the things that were broken last year. And in that, there is this subtle tendency to focus on the self and not the Savior. And so to mitigate against that penchant, that tendency, I thought it pastorally wise for us to focus here. But it is this passage in particular that has been near and dear to my own heart for several years now, and I've been looking for a good opportunity just to give it on to you. In fact, my wife and I were doing our annual little marriage retreat. My parents will watch our kids for us Uh, this one night out of the year so we can get away and have some conversation. And one of the intentional questions that we've asked each other for at least six years now is, what's the biggest thing that the Lord has been teaching you about himself over the course of the last year? The funny thing was, as I was reflecting upon that question, I couldn't actually think about the biggest thing from last year. I was still thinking about something from two years ago, and that was this very text. I still find myself these days more impacted by Matthew eleven twenty eight and 30, more so than anything else that I've read in recent memory. And so I want to share that with you. And I think that we need it for a couple reasons. One is that tendency, again, that we have to focus on self, to, to, to start off the year out of labor and exhaustion and not out of rest. And yet the text will call us to something different. The truth is, several people in this church, if you're visiting here, I'll let you know a little bit about us, uh, have come from uh, culturally fundamentalistic backgrounds. 
And in light of that, we have these tendencies from time to time to spend more focus on self and not enough on the salvation that Jesus has offered us. So in light of that legalistic penchant that can be a part of us all, I thought this text is helpful. But there's another reason why Matthew 11 is especially appropriate for this day. And that is because it has been a while since we have heard in our own midst of someone being converted. Now, there is an average of 30 to 40 people visiting here every Sunday, many of whom do not seem to understand the gospel at all. And frankly, I am concerned. I don't know why it is actually rare for us to see conversions. I don't know what is happening, but what I appreciate about this text is it is a clear call for those who may be on the fence to come into or, or underneath the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so whether you be a visitor here today or whether you be a teenager or a young adult who has yet to profess faith in Christ, this text is a clear call for you to enter into the rest and the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, let's look at this precious text and its promises. You need to understand that this particular passage takes place in a context in which there is a contrast between the rejectors of Jesus Christ and the receivers of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 11, Jesus has just declared this elevated judgment upon uh, the cities of Bethsaida and Chorazin because they have rejected his works even though they saw his miracles. In fact, he wouldn't say it this way, but we would think of the degrees of hell. There is a hotter part in hell for those who have had more access to Jesus' revelation and have rejected it than those who have had less access. We base that off of Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24. There are some who are rejecting Christ, and so in this, Matthew also records Jesus' explanation of the difference between the rejectors of Christ and the receivers of Christ. The the, the transition happens at verse 25. He, He thanks God that even though many of them had rejected him, that some do receive him. And he blames it on the sovereignty of God. He says, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The only reason why some people actually received Christ versus those who rejected Christ is because God had graciously revealed himself to them. It was his kindness. The people who thought they had it all figured out, they missed it. The people who knew they needed something like children do, they received it. And it was because the Father had done this. It was all part, in verse 26, of his gracious will. And the instrument for that revelation was none other than Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, they would see their need for him. And that is how God would work sovereignly, in the person of Christ. And so we see the difference between the rejecter of Christ and the receiver of Christ is none other than the revelation of God but also the invitation of Jesus. The text explains that those of us in this room this morning who have received Christ indeed have been sovereignly called by him. There is a matter of the supernatural, of the sovereign, but there is also a matter of the responsive and the receptive. Because Jesus not only says the Father sovereignly did it, he says, but you choose to enter in and respond to the invitation. (laughs) So if the first few verses emphasize God's sovereignty, the next few verses emphasize man's responsibility. And that's why he follows it up with, come to me. If you're weary, if if you're heavy laden, uh, come and receive the rest that I offer. Come under my authority. And so what he's doing here is he is incentivizing our finding rest under the authority of Jesus. That's what this passage is about. It is an invitation for us to find rest under the authority of Jesus, and particularly we see three incentives for entering in under the authority of Christ. The first one is that other authorities are exhausting. 
other authorities are exhausting. Look at verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice the assumption that those who have rejected Christ or have yet to receive Christ are weary and heavy laden. The term weary there is just the term that we would use to describe our own exhaustion in labor. I know that we've had, some of us, a break over the last couple of weeks, but many of us know what it's like to be in the throes of work. I think of one who's ever done physical labor. Maybe the most exhausting thing that I think I've ever done in my life is dig a ditch. If you've ever had the misfortune of doing such, you know what it is to be exhausted. It is relentless. Uh, It is draining. It it zaps you of all energy. It's not only, though, the physical exhaustion. Sometimes there is mental exhaustion. I think of high school students even today who labor away at math problems, and maybe for some people that's easy, but for me it is exhausting. Uh, There's this, I don't want to think about anything else. I want to binge watch Netflix when this is over. I, I don't want to have to exert any more mental effort. Uh, Jesus is describing a group of people who are exhausted. Not only are they exhausted, but it says that they're heavy laden, which means that they've actually just felt the weight and the burden of their effort and their output. So if uh, the first one is the expenditure of energy, the second is the result. It is this just, I have nothing left. It is this feeling of heaviness uh, down in the bones. It reminds me of a mother who is breastfeeding and is for the like sixth night in a row had her sleep interrupted and can barely move. There is just a heaviness. They, they can barely get up and do what it is that they need to do. Jesus says, this is the group of people that I'm talking to. These are the people who need my authority. Now, we don't know for sure who Jesus is referring to here when he says that you need to come under my yoke, you need to take my uh, leadership upon you. He doesn't say what they're so exhausted over. Now, the assumption would be, in light of what we know of the book of Matthew, is that they are, are, are weighed down with the legalistic teaching of the, the pharisaical professors of the time, the religious teachers of the day, uh, those who actually believed that through, uh, through living out uh, the law of God that they would somehow be able to secure his blessing. This indeed could be a warning against legalism, but one of the things that I would note, friends, about this very text is that Jesus doesn't mention legalism. He keeps it general. He talks about anything, anyone who is weary, anyone who is heavy laden. He's saying that any other authority will wear you out. Indeed, the legalistic teacher will wear you out. You can never do enough to satisfy the guilty conscience, uh, there is always more religious activity that can be done. If, if it's you trying to earn your way to God, yes, indeed, that is exhausting. But friends, it isn't just legalism that is exhausting. I would also argue that lawlessness in itself is exhausting. There's nothing invigorating about trying to figure life out on your own. People know just that, that raw feeling of emptiness, like, like, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I've pursued these particular pleasures, and they are wearing me out. It was interesting this week to be around family, and at one point, uh, my uh, mom was actually telling me about some of her extended family, all of whom I think if you met would be uh, just seemingly great individuals. They hold down jobs, they contribute to society, and yet of uh, the multiple siblings, I think there were six, uh, all of them are divorced uh, and on second uh, uh, marriages, 
And all of them are away from Christ. And I just thought about the sadness of, of that kind of a Christmas. Uh, what is it like to have just pursued your own way and to done your own thing and to try to live the American dream and still sense uh, the emptiness of a family that is a wreck or a, a life that feels unfulfilled? I mean, people know the emptiness of pursuing their own way. It makes me think of the story of the prodigal son. He gets out there. He does his own thing. He thinks that he's living his life, and then he ends up eating scraps from the hogs. It's a bad way to live. Uh, Apart from the authority that is offered in Christ, we are absolutely exhausted. And so anybody who who is totally just strung out, anybody who is feeling just the weight of life, anybody who knows what it is to feel this guilt and this heaviness, They have obviously been living under an alternate authority. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus invites these type of people onto his team. I don't know if you remember that um, opportunity on the playground as a kid. Uh, Maybe uh, they were going to play like a game of basketball. uh, And you, you have to divide up the teams and then somebody has to choose. And so this guy's a team captain, that guy's a team captain, and if you've ever been in the team captain position, uh, who do you pick? You, you pick the tall ones, you pick the fast ones, you pick the strong ones. Jesus here, when he has the opportunity to pick who will be on his team, who does he pick? The weak, the weary, the helpless, the unwise. He's recruiting for this type of individual. He is inviting them out of those other authorities that would exhaust them. And he gives to them rest. There is no payment required. He offers to them the rest that has evaded them and eluded them for so long. And so, friends, we need to understand that all authorities other than Jesus will indeed exhaust us. Uh, Those of us who truly follow Christ are those indeed who do not have it all together. We are those who recognize a sense of need. And friends, it is a dangerous world out there. Christ then calls us away from legalism, away from lawlessness, and he invites us to thrive under his rest. Friends, We should come under the authority of Jesus because the other authorities are exhausting. But there's a second incentive. Look at the first half of verse 29. We also note that Jesus' essence is appealing. The other authorities are exhausting, but on the other hand, Jesus' essence is appealing. Who he is. Uh, Notice this in, in the first half. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Right, so there's the command, and here's the reason why. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now, we, we see that term, take my yoke upon you, and uh, for those who aren't familiar with uh, ancient Near Eastern agricultural equipment, I would just uh, fill you in on the fact that a yoke is not the yoke of an egg. <laughs> it is uh, the yoke of a wooden beam that would actually be placed on the shoulders of a beast of burden. Uh, uh, think of like a horse or a cow of some type. And it would have a piece underneath it that would strap into the neck and it would enable two animals to labor together to pull a heavy piece of equipment. Uh, it's a heavy, rough piece of equipment. And what Jesus is actually inviting us to do is to take his yoke Upon him. He is not saying throw off the shackles of any burden or obligation to anyone anywhere. He's actually saying, no, take my weight upon you. Enter into my workforce, if you will. Why? Why would anybody want to do that? Why would anyone want to don uh, the heavy uh, yoke, or excuse me, the light yoke of Jesus? Why would anybody put themselves under that kind of constraint? The text is clear. Jesus says, it's because of who I am. You should do this because I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
Do you think of, of, of Jesus that way? Like if, if you were to give just a, a two-word summary of Jesus, what would you naturally fill in the blank? I doubt that many of us would be saying that he is gentle and lowly. And yet this is the only place in the entire New Testament in which Jesus describes his very heart, and these are the words that he chooses to use. He's saying, you should come under my lordship. You should come under my authority because of who I am. Uh, The the term uh, gentle and lowly are are hard to define outside of the words themselves. In fact, I even uh, wrestled with one of uh, my children over this yesterday. I said, what's the best way that I can define gentle and lowly without using the words gentle and lowly? And we never came to a solution. So what I'm going to do is actually share with you a definition that I uh, gleaned from Dane Ortland's book under the same title, and I find it immensely helpful. When he's talking about the word gentle, uh, he says that it is, means meek, humble. Uh, Jesus is not trigger-happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. He's gentle. What about lowly? He says the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. Can I just point something out to you? We just sang earlier, Jesus strong and kind. What a beautiful song. Because most of the time when we think of a strong individual, we don't think of them as very kind. And when we think of a kind individual, we don't think of them as very strong. And yet, because of this very text, we can marry the two together authoritatively. Notice in verse 25, Jesus thanks his father for revealing these things to little children. And then he acknowledges that it was all about the gracious will of God by which anyone would ever be saved and receive Christ. But now notice what he says about himself in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal to him. Uh, Friends, if you want to talk about the strength of Jesus, he reveals it here as he says, everything that the Father has, I own. It is mine. And if anyone is ever going to come into a saving relationship with God, it will be because I had a part in it. That is the ultimate in power. And yet just two verses later, he is saying, I am approachable. I am open. I am am available. We we put these two together and I read this last section. He says, gentle and lowly. This, according to his own testimony, is Christ's very heart. This is who he is. Tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. If we're asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. If Jesus hosted his own personal website, the most prominent line of the About Me drop-down would read, gentle and lowly in heart. That is our Lord. That is the reason why we would enter under his authority is because he is the kind of guy that you would want to work for. He is the one that you would want to submit yourself to. I don't know if you have ever met anyone who is famous or you know someone who knows someone who is famous. Uh, Typically, the the, the questions that uh, get batted about uh, when that type of scenario is presented to us is uh, question number one, how long have you known them? And then question number two, what is he really like? Friends, if we wanted to know what Jesus is really like, we would think of him as gentle, lowly. The problem is that some of us are reticent 
to place ourselves under the authority of Jesus because we don't view him as gentle and lowly. Uh, Rather, we view him as rather stern and austere. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, the old Puritan, actually like nailed this tendency among us all as he writes, men are apt to have contrary conceits of Christ or conceptions of Christ. But he tells them his disposition there by preventing such hard thoughts of him to allure them unto him the more. We are apt to think that he, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. No, says he, I am meek. Gentleness is my nature and my temper. Sometimes we indeed think that Christ is like the, the kid who, who is struggling to, to touch some kind of like slug or snail. Like he, he interacts with us because he has to. He's holy. He hates sin. He's willing to interact, and yet he's reluctant to do so. And yet the text says here is, no, he is eager. He is open. He is available to those who are struggling. It is his very heart to help those who have need of him. He he does not reject us in any way. He actually receives us. He invites us. And this is good, friends. I mean, this is good news, friends. I, I want you to think, in those times in your life where you have actually been in trouble, where you have messed up big time, and you need help, to whom do you typically turn? I would think that if you were going to uh, maybe reach out to a pastor here at the church, you would probably target one of the pastors or elders who seems to be the most compassionate and the most humble and the most available, as opposed to the one that's the most stern and austere and well-collected. We know what it's like when we have like, messed up big time. We want compassion. Jesus is not the stern, austere, uptight elder. He is the loving, compassionate, gracious, acceptable one. Friends, I think this is fantastic news for all of us. We come to a Jesus who washes the feet of the one who would deny him and the one who would betray him. We come to a Jesus who welcomes children into his very presence. We come to a Jesus who actually forgives the sinner, who heals the broken. This is his tendency. He invites us to come to him. And in light of that, friends, I would be remiss if I didn't challenge our own conceptions and portrayals of Jesus in light of this truth. What I mean by this is that evangelicals have uh, typically been marked by being conversionistic people. Uh, They're normally uh, marked by uh, people who um, gather together in churches and worship Uh, But Mark Galley, the editor of Christianity Today, tried to add a new modifier for the American evangelical in recent days. He said that if you really wanted to know what a Bible-believing Protestant Christian is like in the United States today, uh, he or she would be a Jesus-y type of person. Now, that is not a word. Your spell check will not follow it. (laughs) But you kind of get the idea. A Jesus-y person. Now, of course, we should be consumed with Jesus, uh, not only coming to him, but conveying him to others. And I would ask, friends, when you are conveying Christ to others, are you marked by that which is hard and unapproachable or that which is tender and compassionate? As you're pursuing Christ-likeness over the course of the last year, for example, uh, are you becoming increasingly humble or haughty, approachable, or distant, meek, or intense, reserved, or rambunctious, gentle, or harsh. I, um, I say this to you, friends, because I realize that over the last couple of years, for whatever reason, the Lord in His patience has actually allowed me to see that in my pursuit of Christ, I have actually begun to embrace some conceptions of Him 
that don't align with his very heart. In my desire to be an effective leader and an effective pastor, and I think the same could be true of many who want to be effective Christians in their own capacity, I've been more influenced by the world than I have by the Word. Of Some of the ways that I've seen that in myself is that I have read and I study and I think about how I can be more effective. I think about and plan about strategize how I can be more efficient. I think about how I can get more stuff done. I love to, to read things on productivity. I, I want to be a good manager. And, and that mindset, it constantly bleeds into me. And, and it just struck me the other day as Mitch was preparing for his message on the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, friends, is not productivity. It is not effectiveness. It is not efficiency. Rather, it is love and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness and patience. These are the marks of an effective follower of Christ. Not merely the robot that can get things done. And so, friends, to be a Jesus-y people would mean that we are actually a tender people, a meek people, mild, approachable. And we can't blame it on our personalities. We can't just say, well, that's just the way I am. I took the test and I'm a type A. I took the test and I register as this. It is not up to the test. It is up to the truth of the Scripture to inform what your picture of Jesus should look like. And it is gentle. And it is lowly. And so, friends, we would want to enter under the authority of Jesus because his essence is appealing. He's the kind of person that we would want to be around. But there's a third incentive for entering under his authority. And it is because his outcome is assuring. Uh, There is a result, an end result of coming under his authority, and it is a rather assuring one. You see it in the second half of verse 29 into verse 30. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He gives another example. You will find rest for your souls. This is the second time he said it. Look at the end of verse 28. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. And then he explains in verse 30, why? But for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Particularly here, what does Jesus mean by rest? Well, friends, when you actually follow the storyline of Scripture, you will come to understand that God from the very beginning intended for His people to enjoy rest. He did not intend for us to constantly be worn down by the fray of life. In fact, the way that He had set it up is that our week would begin with a time of extended rest, and then from that we would be able to go into the week energized. This is a very ancient Near Eastern way of thinking, and I'd just borrow your imagination for a moment, because most of us in 21st century American culture think of the day starting with the morning and then ending with the evening. For us, the day starts with us doing what needs to get done, and then we rest. But do you know that in ancient Near Eastern culture, the day actually starts at night, (laughs) and then it ends the next day? The most important thing that anyone would do, the first thing that anyone does is to rest. And then from that, they approach the work of the day. In a similar way, the Sabbath was supposed to set up uh, the Old Testament saint for the labor of the week. He was to operate out of the energy and the rest that God had provided. And then he would do that which needed to be done. What Jesus is promising here is that we would have the energy and the capacity to do what we need to do because he provides rest. I don't know about you, but I actually like, don't want to rest all the time. I like to expend myself. I like to labor, but I don't like to do it when I'm plumb exhausted. He says, I will give you the capacity that you need to do what you need to do for me. This will be rest for your soul. He is assuring them that there is a peace, that there is a tranquility, that there is an energy that comes from operating under His yoke. Friends, and I would warn you on the other hand of things again. 
that choosing to do things your own way will lead you to be stressed out and exhausted in this life and in eternity, never enjoying the rest of God. In fact, you'd enjoy the opposite, his eternal wrath and hell. See, Proverbs warns us of this. It says in Proverbs chapter 23, uh, excuse me, Proverbs 13, 15, that the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. I would encourage you, if you're just wondering about that, just to talk to a saint who has been recently converted or maybe converted a long time and just ask them what life was like apart from Jesus. It's hard. In fact, Jesus himself, uh, through the Apostle Paul, uh, would say in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, I love this contrast. It says, the wages of sin is death. But then he contrasts it. You can work and labor for sin, and you know what your paycheck reads? Death. Separation from God. Separation from the physical body. Uh, in death itself, physical death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. That's the payment. That's the paycheck. Notice the contrast. It says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I like that outcome better than the first one. Jesus says, I will give you rest. This is experiential in this life, but it is also eschatological. It is that which we will enjoy in eternity. And so we do well to remember the outcome of this, that there are good consequences uh, for following uh, Jesus. And, and sometimes, for some of you who are debating on whether or not you would actually follow Him, I, I want to assure you of something, that He will enable your obedience. I think the reason that some people are reticent to come under the Lordship of Christ is because they immediately think, I can't do that. I know I won't live that out. I appreciate the heart that says, you know, I don't know that if I could actually cut it. I don't know that I could live it out. I've seen too many hypocrites, and I don't want to be one of them. Well, friends, you are assuming that it is all up to you. I would leave you the words of Augustine, who wrestled with this very thing. Augustine, uh, this early church father, before he was ever that, was a rather, what's the way to say it? Immoral individual. That's probably the kindest I can put it. You can read his confessions if you want to know more. But at the very moment that he is considering whether or not he will actually submit himself to Christ, he finally uh, uh, like says in prayer, O oh God, give what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. Do you know what that means? He says, give what you command. Enable me to do what you command, and then you can command whatever you want. Particularly, Augustine was struggling, just for the sake of transparency, Augustine was struggling with sexual sin. He didn't think that he would actually be able to live a sexually pure life. And so he says in that context, God, if you'll give what you command, if you will enable me to be sexually pure, you can command whatever you want, even if you want that from me. Friends, we are enabled. We, we have ability through what Christ himself will provide. This is refreshing labor. None of us like to do a job that we think we're going to fail at. I get it. But Jesus enables the obedience. Uh, Paul said it this way. It is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He will give you the desires and he will give you the doing. He will enable it. One of the fruit of the Spirit is endurance. He will see it through to the end. It is His responsibility. And it is a beautiful thing. I would just have you chart in light of this uh, your own enjoyment and experience of the gentle yoke of Jesus. I think there are two extremes that we would want to avoid in this. Uh, the one that I would be concerned about, even among a group like this this morning, would be apathy. A group of people who say, yes, I am submitted to Jesus, but there is actually no effort expended to do what he has commanded. There is no shouldering of the yoke. There is no pushing the direction that he himself has set. They just say, yeah, I prayed this prayer when I was a kid. I believed in Jesus, and now I'm just waiting for heaven. Friends, that apathy may reveal that you are not under 
the gentle yoke of Jesus. It seems that you're under no yoke at all. But there's another extreme that I would warn you against, and that is one of aggression. One that says, I will grit my teeth and I will expend my effort and I will pull myself up by my own bootstraps to make myself a better person. I failed this year, but I'm going to get better the next year. I'm I'm actually going to clean myself up this time. I know I failed, but I'm going to redouble my efforts and I'm just going to keep pushing and I'm going to keep trying and I'm going to make this thing happen. But friends, that might not be the gentle yoke of Jesus. That seems rather hard. There should be an enjoyment. There should be an energy. There should be actually a success. Some of you actually think in error that you should be constantly getting your butt kicked in the Christian walk. It is not the way that God has it set up. Yes, Paul struggled with the flesh at times, but in Romans 8, he says, there's no condemnation. The Spirit empowers me. Our lives should be marked by fruit and obedience. And when we fail, there is forgiveness, but there is enablement by him. And sometimes we may be experiencing the heaviness of life because we're not wearing the gentle yoke of Jesus. Maybe it's the yoke of our own design. Maybe it's the yoke of societal expectations. Maybe it's the yoke of the fear of man that says, I need to live up to a certain standard because other people expect it of me. But Jesus says, the experience under me is restful. It is enlivening. I remember I was challenged on this a few years ago. It's one of those conversations that kind of adjusts the trajectory of your life. I've told some of our pastors this, but I want to share it with you as we bring this to a close. There's this guy that I met uh, through a pastor. It's a long story. And he was a, um, he's not a theologian by any means. He's a, he's a consultant. He helps businesses, organizations, um, and he's not theologically in line with our church. He's definitely more charismatic. Uh, I could just tell from our conversations uh, and the way that he was speaking. But anyway, in a moment of, of transparency, he was trying to help me with a particular issue. And he said, uh, Justin, I want you to kind of chart your life out. Uh, and I, I want you to tell me whether or not basically you're feeling more uh, dominated and like life is out of control or whether you're feeling more like relaxed and protected. Or do you feel like there's this adequate balance of support and challenge in your life right now? So he asked me to chart this out in each of the spheres of influence. You can do this even today. So think about it, in self, like with your own management of yourself, your own soul, your own life. Do you feel dominated, like you've got too much? Or do you feel protected, like, hey, it's really easy, I'm not really challenged at all? Or do you feel liberated? That's kind of right in the middle, the right amount of support and challenge. I think of it, by the way, as like a game of Tetris. If any of you are old enough to remember a Game Boy (laughs) or the game of Tetris, Um, I would say the protected side of things is when it stays on level one all the time. You're just bored. It's like there's no challenge. You're like, let's speed this thing up. Uh, the, The dominated side of things means that the pieces are falling too quick. It gets overly stacked. Uh, You actually can't keep up. But liberated is when it comes down at the right speed. (laughs) And, And it gets a little better and a little better and a little faster. And you're like staying with the game. So, Think about your own life. Is it actually protected, dominated, or is it liberated? Uh, Second one, marriage. Is your marriage, now if you are married or you're working toward that, does it feel like there's too much, there's too little, or is it just right? Uh, Another place that you could assess uh, the pressures of life would be that of church and your relationship to a church family. Do you feel like church is running you ragged and that you're in the dominated category? Or do you feel like you don't really do anything at all but just kind of show up when you can? Or do you feel like it's liberated? It's the right amount of support and challenge. And then you've got work. You've got your job. You've got your vocation. The same thing could be assessed there. And then you've got the sphere of influence of community. Uh, Some people are just crazy busy with stuff out in the community. Some people have nothing going on at all. And some people feel the right amount of support and challenge. So the point is, he gives this to me, and I'm working through the list at this particular juncture in life, and I'm working on my doctorate at the time, and things are obviously in full swing here at the church, and I have five children at home, 
and I've been married 15 years, and we're trying to figure, you know, just life out in a new place. And so he's challenging me on all these, and I'm like, dominated, 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 dominated. He said, what, what's the problem? He says, why are you dominated in all of these areas? I said, man, you don't know what I have to do. I said, you don't understand, like, how busy I am. You don't understand all the stuff that I've got going on. <laughs> and then he read me uh, this verse. He said, Jesus said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if your life is like this, whose yoke are you wearing? Friends, that's a good thing for us all to remember. Jesus said that the experience with him should be invigorating, energizing, operating out of rest, And yet sometimes, because of just self-drive or societal expectation, we just say, no, 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 there's got to be more. No, 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 I've got to be better. Or sometimes, because of just a heart of apathy and not having submitted ourselves to Christ, we're not challenged at all. Knowing the pension of this church family, knowing the way things can go in a culture like ours, I think that the problem is often more on the aggression side of things and not the apathy. But with that being said, Jesus then invites us under His yoke. Why? Why enter under His authority? Very simply, other authorities are exhausting. And Jesus' essence, who He is, that's appealing. And the outcome that he provides is assuring. I would leave you all with one of two exhortations in light of this simple truth. The first is enter into the rest of Jesus. If you have yet to submit yourself to his lordship, what is holding you back? It is so simple. You understand that he lived in such a way that all the demands of the law were satisfied on your behalf if you would believe in him. Everything that you need to do to be right with God has been accomplished through what Jesus himself has already accomplished. And then all the penalty that you deserve, all the rightful wrath of God that should be upon you and should be upon me has been fully satisfied and absorbed through his death on the cross as evidenced by the fact that he rose again from the dead showing that the payment was fully paid and that life can be experienced eternally for all who are believing in him. He has done it all. Jesus paid it all, the old hymn says. Not some, all. And so he says, enter into that. Come and enjoy my rule. Stop trying to do things on your own. Stop trying to live up to other people's expectations. Enter in and enjoy my lordship. Friends, that is a matter of faith. You can pray and ask him to save you if you want to, or you can just say, I do submit to Christ. I am trusting in him. That's what it comes down to. Some of you need to do that. And I don't know what's holding you back. And frankly, some not only need to enter into this, Uh, functionally, but you also should evidence it formally. Friends, it's kind of weird as a pastor when people say that they're following Jesus, but they haven't submitted themselves to like the basic signs of obedience that he himself has given. And I think particularly of baptism, and I think particularly of young people who are teenagers or people who are young adults, Uh, If you really do say that you are believing in Jesus and that you're following him and that you're under his yoke, you know what the first thing he said to do was? Publicly identify with me by being baptized. That is the sign to the world that you are under his lordship, that you have submitted to his rule and his reign. It actually 
actually, is a sign of humility. I am dirty, I needed cleansing. I am dead, and I want his life. Look, the life comes through believing in Jesus alone. But friends, I would not neglect the fact that he also evidences that through a sign. The initial sign, baptism. The ongoing sign, communion, which we'll partake of in a few moments. I'll just tell you this quick anecdote. Yesterday, we're driving home. It's January the 1st, and my wife and I uh, got new insurance. We were so happy to finally have new insurance in light of the crappy insurance that we had for the two years before that. And so anyway, I'm asking, so like, oh, wow, this is so cool. I can't wait to go to the doctor now. <laughs> I won't have to pay as much. And as we're saying, I'm like, where are the insurance cards? And she's like, well, I haven't gotten them yet. I'm like, I really want that insurance card. <laughs> I, want it, I want it known that, that uh, like, it's not just, you know, like in the, the ether out there somewhere, but I am actually one who can partake of these benefits. Friends, let me just clarify that baptism is just the insurance card, if you will. You, you are registered in heaven. Things are cool. They're good. But why wouldn't you want to evidence what Christ has done in you and for you? in the way that he has commanded. Enter in under his authority. Second, enjoy his rest. Enjoy his rest. Can you say today, right at the beginning of 2022, that you enjoy Jesus now more than you did last year this time? Can you say that you actually feel more energized in Christ than you did the year before. Sometimes we assume that we can measure our spiritual progress uh, by the things that we are doing, and yet I think if we were to think carefully about Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, we would measure our sp- spiritual progress by the things that we are enjoying. Are you enjoying Jesus more? Uh, Maybe, friends, it is just simply a matter of rethinking all the stuff that you think you've got to do. Maybe some of you have already come up with 10 New Year's resolutions of all the things that you know that you're going to do and that you need to do to be a better Christian this year. Maybe you need to back it down (laughs) and put right at the top of the list enjoyment of Christ through the means that he has provided, enjoying him as you read his word, not because you have to, but because you get to, enjoying him by talking to him in prayer, not because you have to, but again, because you get to. He is gentle. He is lowly. You would want to talk to him and enjoying him through his signs, like communion even now. What a great way to start the year. 